Blog Talk Radio. Charlie next week. 
Now, you wanted to talk about we were, we were going to do a show last week, but it ended up not happening. And it yeah. Was part of the, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, you, you had mentioned to me about, hey, you know, hey, Murder One had written, uh, posted that he was back in the gym and going to make a, uh, thought he had one more run in him. And then there was also the, um, the, the start of Southern States Pro with a tryout, uh, for roster tryouts, which is going to take place on May 15th, and it's going to be at the Galaxy, the El Galaxy Sports Bar where they had run their last couple of shows uh, out there in Austell where they ran last year. And so yeah. that sounded like a great idea. And um, so I, when I reached out to Josh Wheeler and Murder One, um, it sounded like it was going to be an okay thing. And then the response back from Murder One was he had no interest in uh, doing the show. Um, and uh, I think it's a sh- a shame. I mean, I know that they've got some kind of axe to grind because of you reporting on AWE and the fact that they didn't do shows. And I think this is a thing that it's going to come up more and more and more where people are going to be upset about various things. I'm just going to state my part of it, which is I can understand. I mean, I, I promoted shows, right? I know the pain of not being able to do a thing. At the same time, you got to understand that if you're not communicating, right, all, all Larry and Georgia Wrestling History are going to do is report what we know. And everybody always does this thing of like, well, you can always call me. You can always da 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 But it's like at the end of the day, I, I think you've been incredibly kind to AWE over the years in spite of the fact that they have told you, like, don't cover our shows and all this stuff, you believed in them. I think you still do. And I, while I understand Josh and Murder's feelings and a bunch of personal things came up and, and that kind of thing, I get that. At the same time, um, at the end of the day, AWE, their legacy exists in large part because of you attending those shows and reporting on them um, and marking the time. Like I said, that stuff is so important, and I hope someday they come around. I guess that that's what I'm saying, Larry. Yeah, me too, and I, I messaged back that the offer still stands to come on the, tro- on the show. It, the, the, the specific uh, quote that was sent back to me that um, Murder didn't like was from something I'd written uh, some time ago when they, at a point in time where, where they had stopped running shows, and what, it's, what I wrote was this. I do not believe Georgia Wrestling has seen the last of AWE. However, given the company's track record, it is becoming impossible to trust that any project they start will be sustained. Um, so, you know, I <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, I I believe that to be to be a, a true statement. Um, but anyway, that's that's where we are. I mean, I, I I hope that this is different with Southern States Pro, and it should it should be clear that. Uh, this is mainly a uh, Murder One product, pro- project. Excuse me. Josh is really not uh, a major player in this. It is really Murder's project, and it will not be. Uh, you know, he's Mur- Josh said AWE is never coming back. That this is a different thing, and AWE is gone for good. Yeah, I mean, I got that impression, especially when they're not doing show of the year in December, because that was sort of their big show and, you know, tied in with 
the memories that Josh had with his father and all that kind of stuff. So I figured once that didn't run, that was it. Um, I, I get the impression um, that this Southern States thing is going to have a very different flavor because I'm just going to state this opinion and people can get mad about it or disagree. I'm just my fucking opinion. And my, that AWE no longer needs to happen. That I think groups like Terminus have come in and now this Vendetta show, like, you know, they served a very important place in Georgia wrestling and trying to run in the Atlanta area. And they bang their head against the wall. But at the end of the day, Terminus and other groups have come in and taken their place. Gary Lamb said something I thought very interesting years ago when Southern Honor was first rising, which is that's how these things go. There's people who groundbreak, and then the people who kind of come in and get the benefits of the groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And he was, mm-hmm. he was talking about PCW, right? He was just like, you're the one who had a struggle. You're the one who had to be the outsider that fought. So I would argue Shane Knowles did that as well, which is another reason I wanted to talk to him. But yeah. that other groups have reaped the benefit of people changing the dynamic. And I think AWE did, did that as well. I don't think it's any secret that they had huge financial troubles. I don't think it's any secret that they didn't get to deliver on, on what they wanted to deliver. I don't think they tried to deceive anybody. But the fact is they took those money on Patreon with these promises of these like member exclusive shows and season tickets and all this other shit that didn't happen. Now, I don't think it was malicious, but the fact is these things did not happen. I don't think any of those people who gave them money hold it against them. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying at the end of the day, they didn't deliver. And it's not a new story in wrestling. It is the story in wrestling, is it not? I mean, rare is the promotion that goes out on its own terms. And um, I'm hoping Southern State, I wish them well. I think the idea of a combine is fascinating. I think some of the people who agreed to do it are very cool. You know, you got Joe Black and William Huckabee, amongst others, who have kind of volunteered for this thing. I hope that means that they're going to have a good showing for the combine. I know that that would bode well for Southern State. Yeah, I saw Proc Johnson's name on there um, that, that he's going to try it. I saw Alex Kane's uh, name come up. And, you know, this is – it is it is something different. Is You know, Murder's projects always have interesting angles on them, and this is going to be – at least this the combine thing is going to have a little bit of a reality TV element to it where they're – the murder and, and his judges and the crowd critique. They do a match and they critique it. And he's, I saw where he's bringing in top dollars. One of his judges. Yes. So anyway, well, I, 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 it's, I might just have to go and 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 check it out. You know, and see what see and, what happens. I mean, and if you do, it becomes a different kind of event, and I would dare say a more a more significant one and that they should welcome you. Um, I, you're, aren't you going to Southern honor this weekend as well? Big weekend. Yeah. I'll be at Southern honor. Cause Rob is work schedule. Unless something changes with his work schedule, he's out of action Friday night. So, um, so to speak. So he's not going to do a show. Jabari's going to be down in Tyrone for the action show. I'll be nice. at Southern honor. And then Saturday night, uh, Rob is going to go to the wrestling United show in Buchanan, which looks very interesting, the best lineup they've had 
in a long time. And I probably will wind up then at Southern Fried on Saturday night, the way things are looking. But, yeah, they they got quite a lineup out there at Wrestling United Saturday night. And, again, I you know, I know I say this kind of thing all the time, but look at this. There, there are four major shows arguably major, certainly three major shows that absolutely are major, and then one that is on the come-up, and they are all being covered, right, by Jabari, by Rob Rod, by you. And that's not even factoring in where is Duke going to go. And wherever Duke ends up going, he's going to fill in the blanks as far as notes and all that stuff. I mean, we are in a time, Larry, this is insane. The kind of coverage that everybody's getting, it's wonderful. And uh, very important, very significant. So what else do you want to talk about before my man, the statistician, gets on here? Well, we've just got a couple minutes. I just want to touch base back on this Wrestling United again. On this card, Joe Black, Cruel, Zach Mosley, Southern Strong Style, Huckabee and Hanson. Um, it's, it's pretty stacked for Wrestling United. I mean, yeah, I wish him, I wish him a lot of luck with this. It's... It's so fun to see the guys, especially the younger guys, or the guys that have reinvented themselves like Cruel, getting this kind of work. I mean, if guys want to, they can do three shows a week just in the Georgia area. That's Mm -hmm. that's mind-blowing. I mean, the whole reason I started PCW was I'm like, there's not enough fucking shows for these guys to do. So, like, I'm going to just do them, right? And now, my God, you know. You can wrestle for shows, and then they all have different flavors. That's what's so cool. Action and Southern Honor, Southern Fry, Wrestling United, they each have their own flavor and tenor and different styles of running a locker room and different, you know, different levels of involvement from the wrestlers themselves on how much of a factor they are as far as agenting and all that kind of stuff. So, again... Georgia is no joke. I, I would dare say Georgia does not take a backseat to any state as far as their indie scene goes. I think I can make that statement very definitively. If there, if that includes uh, California. That includes any kind of northeastern state that gets a lot of publicity. That includes Florida. Georgia is right there doing it, and it is incredible to see. Oh, hold on a sec. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, what's Larry got going on? In any case, while Larry is doing what Larry does and making sure we're all set, I'm going to talk about I'm writing this article. Um, I'm very excited about it. I started it today. I should finish it tomorrow morning. And uh, I'm going to dare say it's probably the most important thing I've ever written about wrestling. So, Sorry for the dead air. Oh, that's okay. Sorry about that. I I filled in. That's what I do. I figured you would. <laughs> you know, one last thing before I bring on our guest. Um, the, the word's out, of course, that David Ali will be departing after departing the Georgia scene after this weekend. And, um, yeah. guys, he's, I mean, he's, one of, he's been one of our best. He's had a hell of a run. And I wish him all the best when he heads to Chicago. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Larry, it's your show. I think we've got our guest here. We're very pleased to have him with us at this time from Wrestling, Wrestlenomics, excuse me, 
uh, Levy Margolin. Welcome to The Tipping Point, sir. Hey, guys. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Hey. Yeah, thanks for doing it. Absolutely. Any- what, would you, what would you like to be called, just to make sure, because I'm old and we need to make sure that I say the right thing. Sure. Um, I'm easygoing. As long as I know that you're addressing me, it's all good. But uh, my first name is pronounced Lovey. 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 Okay. Yes. So, Lovey, I'll start. My name's Stephen. What kind of mental problems do you have (laughs) that make you apply your incredibly intelligent, mathematically oriented, economically inclined brain is something as stupid and puerile as pro wrestling. What is your inspiration? <laughs> Maybe bad parenting. I was the youngest of four kids, and I think my parents were tired by the fourth, so I could do <laughs> I could do whatever I wanted. So <laughs> stay up as late as I want, watch whatever TV shows, and of, of course, I found my way not only to wrestling but to comic books. You know, so um, the comic books, for the most part, I follow a little bit of that business. Got a little bit tired of it, but pro wrestling, even when I got tired, mostly of the mainstream stuff, um, still love going to some live events. Um, I always kept an interest in the business. And once I realized that not only can I consume, you know, um, business information, but if I was able to at the very least track it and then, you know, once maps became a little bit more public, start counting numbers, talking about an obsession, um, and actually, uh, produce some, some news and, uh, information, then, uh, I was off and running. So probably my, um, over the last uh, five years has probably been where my obsession of, of this part of wrestling has picked up. But I always loved, like, uh, in the Observer when they would have how many people were at an event and so on. Like, that always fascinated me. I don't know why, but it, it always did. Well, I, w- I was just saying today, Lovey, I was saying that the Observer, I was, I was, part of this article I'm writing is really dragging guys like Dave Meltzer and Jim Cornette. <laughs> and part of what I'm dragging Dave over is the only parts of the Observer that are worth reading now are his obituaries, which are still top notch, right? No, but like when you die in wrestling, you want Dave Meltzer to write about you. <laughs> and, and his, and, and the stuff of the numbers, I find that stuff so fascinating. And, I'm just, I'm so glad you're doing this. Like, Larry, how did you, how did you get in contact? How did you first encounter all of this? Well, I, I, I ran across uh, Lavi's article about live event analysis of pro wrestling in the U.S., non-WWE, AEW, for the first quarter of 2022. And I thought, wow, this is great stuff. And, I, and he mentioned Georgia Wrestling History in the write-up, and I just reached out to him and said thanks for the mention, and that I just told him how much how interesting I found what he was doing. So, yeah. That's amazing. So, Lovey, like, what is your take? I'm just going to ask you a hard question right off the jump. Sure. Um, what is your take about the economics of wrestling? and how it has changed in the last five years. I mean, there's no resemblance to what wrestling, what, I mean, how the WWE and AEW make their money. Like everything to me seems topsy turvy 
over how they used to make money, how they used to report on money, but some things remain the same, right? WWE still lies about their crowds. Like, I find all the, the way that numbers are used and manipulated and have entered the business so interesting. What is your take on the last five years in general in wrestling? You're right. Yeah, no, 100%. It, it's changed so much. And probably that what, that's part of what makes the non-WWE, non-AEW so interesting just because of some of their economics um, still rely on some of the, uh, the old school stuff like um, – ticket sales, merchandise, those sort of things. But talking about WWE and AEW, probably the best way of putting it is that they're content producers at this point, whereas you could even say, even as of just a handful of years ago, that WWE was a content distributor, as it seemed like they were leaning more towards WWE Network. And then once they switched over in terms of their um, uh, executives under Vince McMahon of um, Nick Khan, um, they really pivoted to really selling to the highest bidder and and breaking up those rights across the world. And certainly, um, you know, we talk about uh, Tony Khan's family and, and his wealth, but certainly as a company specifically, um, you know, their money um, comes from the, uh, the Warner Media deal. And that's why everyone's always like, when there's a change and uh, Discovery bought the company, everyone's like looking at it closely, like what's going to happen, have like nightmares of 2001 again. Is there, is there a Jamie Kellner on the board? Like what's going to happen? I think that they're safe for now, but like I mentioned, I think that's what makes sort of following the other promotions um, so uh, so interesting whether it's through Georgia wrestling history from not only uh, the ground up you know the, the smallest promotions that might be drawing 40 to 60 but those that have somewhat of a, a national uh, spotlight on them you know depending on the ownership and the matches that are happening it might draw a few hundred so I, I find it all fascinating but I feel like for the most part, and, and talking about WrestleNomics, of which I contributed an article, but really that's Brandon Thurston's um, thing, who took over from uh, Chris Harrington, the um, senior VP now of, um, of AEW, which was cool to like, see one of our own uh, <laughs> obsessives uh, get, get an executive <laughs> position. So we're all like, rooting for him and like, secretly hoping maybe that'll be us one day or whatever. Um, but... Um, but yeah, so the, like that's I feel like that's covered so well. But like it's interesting to like once you start looking at like the niches of the industry, like that's like um, let's say like game changer wrestling. Like as yeah. Paul Heyman once as Paul Heyman said recently on an interview about AEW, what do you think about them? It's not for me, right? Like I'm 40 years old. It's not for me. I saw it at the Hammerstein, Brett Lauderdale has been amazing to my podcast. He came on twice um, and it's really been supportive. He actually looks, um, you know, gives uh, his take on the numbers that I share um, before putting out the report for his wrestling, but that's not for me. But in terms of looking at it as a growing promotion, like I could go in now to Eventbrite and like, I look every week, like how many rows do they have? Did they add a row? How are things moving? And when you're looking at it, you know, uh, on the granular level, you could be like, Oh, Atlantic city last weekend was really slow compared to the past and compared to the death matches that they're going to have in June. Sorry, I went off the rails, but I, no, no, I, the I mean, I love it. You know, I, I, I gotta ask this. Um, if you were, cause 
we'll have any, most of the people who listen to this podcast are like industry people, right? Um, if you had a general bit of advice based on the stats that you compiled, trends that you're noticing, what's a general, what are general bits of advice you would give to wrestling promoters as a general rule with, um, with the understanding that there's always going to be specific details that are different. There's going to be things that apply more or apply less. Obviously, if you're a game changer wrestling and you're running shows in multiple cities and you're going bonkers and you also have the economics of whatever you're getting from Fight TV or IWTV and that kind of thing, that's a whole different animal, right? But just in general, do you have any advice or common mistakes you see made by indie promoters in general? Yeah, 100%. I've actually been, been thinking about something like this for a while. And not everyone is as focused on, like, distributing content. But I think these days, even if it's not television or streaming, you're, you're, people are doing something on YouTube, at the very least, to promote themselves. So I would say, like, let's say even you were early stages or, like, uh, you got some investment or, or grandma left you some money and you're about to start your own promotion, um, and you're – going to record it, you know, through some means, I would spend a decent amount of money having a product that's watchable. Meaning that like, um, I'm not sure if you saw the Defy wrestling special and I, I you know, I don't mean to, um, to knock them. Um, uh, they oh no, even absolutely. Came, Please they, do. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> they came on our show and were very kind to us, but like the microphone sounded like a tin can um, you know, the feed went out, you know, Washington Hall, it might have been last minute and so on. They used the F curse 25 times in one minute. Like, it, a lot of people, if you were discovering that for the first time, you'd be turned off. So I'd say, like, invest in the production. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be, like, top notch, but you should be able to see the picture clearly. Um, you know, if you're streaming it, um, you know, make sure that you can hold the feed. I know that's always been a challenge, but most likely if you're recording it for later use, make sure you can just – get it consistently, have some lighting, those sort of things. A company that does that well, and, and he's a friend, Matthew Ryan at, at Catalyst Wrestling. They're a small company out of New Jersey or Brooklyn. Um, their shows since, like, the early episodes were a little shaky, but at that time they were fine. But, like, their shows for a promotion of that size, like, it's very watchable. And even one day, like, you know, a lot of their stars, like, like many promotions, went on to AEW or so on. Like, there's a way to monetize that content somewhat in the future and here it's watchable whereas some promotions even like ring of honor back in the day um i remember taking a bus trip to a show and i hadn't watched the dvds i was more a live event experience person like it was unwatchable because you couldn't hear it you know the the lighting was overexposed so that's that's one thing um the second thing is that what's interesting about like the tier two or three or four and so on, but sustainably is that different promotions have found different ways of succeeding and that are totally different from one another. So for example, um, David Marquez is like the last person standing at the moment for wide syndication um, distribution. Um, you know, I'm sure you know, um, uh, 
Bill Barron's, uh, well, from the Georgia scene, um, who that was his bread and butter for uh, many years. But like Dave Marquez, look, he has like 70, 75% penetration across the U.S. Yes, most of that is um, digital networks and it's through barter, but, but that works for them. Um, they recently did have a sellout in L.A. or Hollywood, but for the most part, they don't draw well live, whereas you contrast that to NEW here near where I live. Um, I'm in New York, but they're in Connecticut for the most part, a little bit of the Hudson Valley too, Mid-Hudson Civic Center. Um, they know, okay, we have um, the Hardys, they're expensive, but when we get them or when C Cody Rhodes is available or John Moxley certainly, we can pay that, but we're going to draw people too. We know we can get our 1100 1600 2000 and and that works for them um whereas um you have those that are under some form of of um corporate ownership now that are more content producers again we we're talking about people getting a rights fee but you have uh, impact which is under uh, anthem which is interesting to find from what i found you know uh, in terms of online business um listings and so on anthem is actually owned by northern pacific group nobody talks about that but that's a financial oh, investment wow. firm yeah and they're usually the goal of of a, of a firm like that is you spend the money you gussy it up and then you get it ready to sell to another company. Like the Northern Pacific Group, they bought a tech company called Pipeworks, um, and then they sold it for, I think, $90 million. So uh, my idea, and again, I'm going a little off the rails, my idea was that when we heard reports of Ring of Honor selling to Tony Khan, which I don't think it's closed yet, tomorrow is the, um, um, the Sinclair Q1 um, report, um, we'll see if they mention it, um, that probably now is the time for Northern Pacific Group to not necessarily sell all of Anthem, but if they can break it out and sell um, the impact, you know, that might be a good idea. You know, WWE might feel a little bit spurned that they couldn't, that they didn't have the right bid for Ring of Honor. Maybe Tony Khan wants to get this library too. Now's a good time to sell. So each company sort of has its uh, own things, but it's hard to be like, I think the challenge for a company, though, for GCW, which which has grown so much, is sort of that old challenge that we would hear about, like ECW. You know, not saying that they're at that level at the moment, but like too too big to be a small independent, um, yeah. and uh, you know, too uh, too small to be like a, a big national company, certainly, like even on tier two. So where are they and where do they go? Because a lot of their base is built on deathmatch wrestling. Um, you know, in New York, they can't do that. So they, the show at the Hammerstein, which it was, um, it was criticized. I, my first experience, I thought it was okay, if not a little bit overwhelming, uh, <laughs> being four years old again. Um, but, um, but like, sort of like, how do you move away from that if they want to? Like, cause there's a, only a small percentage of people that want to watch deathmatch wrestling. Yeah. I, I had a question, uh, speaking of impact. So I saw where they had let Willie Mack go, right? And apparently the reasoning behind letting Willie Mack go is because if they had picked up the option for the third year on his contract, he would have gotten paid $100,000. And the, the reaction from wrestling fans on the Internet was, oh, that's so lame they wouldn't pay Willie Mack. 
my reaction was, holy shit, how could they possibly have paid that guy $100,000, right? Because when I look at Impact, I go, that's a small show, right? Um, I mean, you know, their, their live viewership on the television show is nothing to speak of, right? It's, it's 100,000 people, right? So what, why would that contract have even been offered? Can you speculate on what they were thinking when they offered this idea of, hey, Willie Mack, if we, if we bring you on for this 30 year, we'll give you 100 grand? How did they possibly think they could pay for that or that it would be viable? You know, they've gone through so many different cycles, even under current ownership, focusing on the anthem. Um, part for now where it's like, okay, they're going to spend and now they're going to cut back and so on. I think for the most part as um, a company or as a division of a company, they've sort of stabilized in terms of figuring out who they are. Even post-pandemic, for the most part, they have a good sense of like how to run things in, in terms of like what works for them or seemingly what works for them. Like they'll book a venue um, notwithstanding the fairgrounds, but the book of venue that's, let's say, 2,500, 3,000 seats, they'll set it up for three to 600 seats. I'm assuming that's sort of like, so that they have a lot of space for if they're going to ha- have rigging, um, you know, for lighting, different uh camera angles, you know, um, all that, all that sort of stuff. And then they could have like small wins where they could actually announce like, Oh, we sold out the Hudson civic center and so on. So like, even if it was, um, it was 488 reserve plus whatever GA was something like six or 700, I would speculate. So like they kind of know like, okay. And I think every time they go on the road to tape, I, I'm going to guess that they lose money, but where do they make money from? Um, even though it's part of the same company that um, Access TV has to assign some sort of rights fee to them, or um, probably that, or the way Ring of Honor worked with Sinclair would be they would give them um, a few minutes within the hour, sort of a barter, even within the same company, to sell on their own as opposed to a specific rights fee. But Impact has been really, really good at distributing not only in terms of worldwide, which has been lessened, and and some people have talked about to me they're in the business, they don't think there's a lot of rights fees coming out, but through the new different platforms, right? They have their own channel talking about Pluto. They have their own Pluto channel. they're, you know, they've lost ground to AEW, but they're basically the second biggest um, pro wrestling brand on YouTube. Um, every time there's like a new streaming service or fast service, like they're out there. So they're bringing in money. Um, on its face, it doesn't seem like that's happening, but through these other channels, they are making money. Now, in terms of a specific deal, sometimes if the balloon payment is in the third year and you have the the rights to to cut that person it might be like uh an enticement let's say like okay it's lower the first year it's mid-range the second year it's only if it's going really well the third year would you do that right um the number does sound you know high to me especially when it's um how many shows is it a year now um even when the deal is signed right let's say um 40 
40, 50 shows. Let's see, even at that time were anticipated uh, when they were doing a lot of those um, shows where they team up with local promotions and they would, they would um, run like Saturday night shows on Twitch and, and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so he was, you know, I think he was like a buzz talent back then, but sometimes, like, even with Impact, I think sometimes it does go into that, like, polar vortex, or if, like, you get forgotten about, but um, the Impact rating on Access, yeah, it's not great, but shockingly, um, New Japan is doing so much worse since returning that the Impact number sort of sounds even better. Wow. Mm. See. Larry, do you have a do you have yeah. a question for? Yeah, Lobby. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm wondering about the, the data collection aspect of what you do. How hard is it to get good numbers uh, from you know from all these shows like you tracked in that first quarter report? Great question. So, post pandemic, I've been doing it like as it as it happens or, you know, as it's reported. Previously, I had uh, done ambitious projects where I was going backwards. <laughs> That's when it gets difficult. So I'm the person that tracked Ring of Honor from inception to close uh, all of their uh, attendances. Now, for the most part, um, one has to take that and, and any attendance number sort of as, um, as, a broad, as broad strokes as opposed to like, this is the number, unless it's coming. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people even, people even dispute it sometimes coming from athletic commissions. Um, they certainly dispute the numbers coming from the promotions. But if it's being done in, in a somewhat consistent fashion, like you're comparing if it's the same outlet, um, the same type of source that was recording previous and future numbers, it, it gives you a, a comparison point. So, but in terms of the um, the, uh, the Q1 number, and really I started July, I think things, you know, certainly in certain states, they um, took COVID to, to varying degrees, not to get super political, but certainly like in terms of national promotions, really like July 2021 is really when things like, start ramping up again. So that's like when I was like, okay, um, I've tried sometimes in the past to do things retroactively, but here is my moment. I'm going to track everything in the U.S. That's not WWE. At first I started with AEW and then I realized that like Brandon Thurston, Dave Melter, and so many others were have that covered, wrestle, uh, wrestle take. So, um, so looking at the resources, so certainly, you know, we know the observer, but when, you know, again, not to knock Dave, but like when you look closely, sometimes things don't add up. Like I've counted NEW maps where there weren't as many seats on the map as was being, uh, there was more in the observer being listed as a number over and above the number of seats that I had seen on a ticket map. So like, you know, you have to sort of account for that. So in my own spreadsheet, I, I try and track those things, but um, WrestleTix, um, they don't do as much outside WWE and AEW, but whatever they do is great. Like right now I'm watching them track um, Washington, D.C., uh, New Japan. <laughs> Otherwise, if they weren't around, I would be counting the maps. I used to do that with Ring of Honor, even when, uh, not Madison Square Garden, thank thankfully, but uh, when they were in New Orleans one WrestleMania weekend, which was several thousand. Um, so WrestleTix, um, I have Google alerts set up 
up. So, um, so you know, you get a few uh, newspapers reporting numbers, uh, certainly cage match and resources like that. And, uh, you know, imagine, imagine if every state had a Georgia wrestling history, right? That would be amazing. Like, like the volume of results of your correspondence and the resource that you've built is just amazing. And that's why when I do the report, I actually have noted in the last three reports, like um, when I'm showing you the averages, it's somewhat skewed just because of the volume of shows that we're counting out of Georgia, because you're not really getting that out of any other state. And I'm so glad to be talking with you about this because uh, I had certainly been familiar with your reports, uh, certainly from Cornelia for, let me know if I'm off here for like 25 years. Um, but, um, but I hadn't been back to Georgia wrestling history in a while for an attendance uh, to track attendance, but I was on cage match and like when you go through cage match and you see Georgia, it was like all the results are coming in. And I was like, who's putting this in? I don't know, Chris Zellner. Uh, but then I realized like, I was like, Oh, okay. When I found Georgia wrestling history, I was like, this is where it's all coming from. Cause it all corresponds there. So multiple sources. And um, one of the things I forgot also is I, I kind of joke, but it's true in the, in the report is that I'm pretty good at counting maps. So um, that's something that if it's a, if it's a countable map, if it's an open map, I'll, um, I'll do that. And it's important to do it early because let's say like an MLW, um, I'd say at the 2300 arena, they might not at first open up all of the seats. So when mm -hmm. somebody looks right before the showtime, they're like, oh, this show is, um, is nearly sold out. But even when you're looking late, um, the advice if somebody else wants to do this is to look for patterns. If you see like five rows in the middle that are completely clean, um, and uh, there's tickets ahead of it. And unless there's like a big price difference, that should make you like question like, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So, well, I, Levy, you know, we have another guest. I would, I mean, I think I can speak for Larry here. We would love to have you back soon. Um, in particular, you know, there's this phenomenon that happens in Georgia wrestling where crowds tend to go down summer. Um, so I would love to have you back um, to talk about what is that trend. Um, just to give you a little advance notice of looking at, is that, is, is that a real thing that crowds drop in the summer? Or is that just sort of like this idea that it's kind of hot cold? Um, and I want to give you a chance right now to, how can people find you? Um, see what you do and all the rest of that. Please let us know. Great. Thank you so much. And I'd love to come back and, and talk about that or anything else uh, in that regard. Um, so I'm on uh, Twitter, uh, probably way too much, Lavi Marg, L-A-V-I-E-M-A-R-G. I have a weekly podcast called The Business of the Business with uh, John Paz. Um, you could find that through my Twitter or any other um, uh, platform and um, my long-form articles are on lioncubjobsearch.com. Long story why it's called that. I will get into that next time. And then finally, as was referenced already on the podcast, on my Q1 2022 um, live events, non-WWE, non-AW report is on wrestlenomics.com. Awesome. Well, this, is, this awesome. has been a pleasure. 
thank you so much for doing the show, and we definitely, as Steve said, would love to have you back in the future. Thank you, guys, and thank you for all you do. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Super cool, but Larry, yeah. I have a feeling, speaking of super cool, um, is our other guest ready? The man, by the way, who bowled the ball between his legs and got a strike. <laughs> yeah, we got that guy. We got that guy who rolled the bowling ball between his legs and rolled a strike. Bro, and, uh, come on now. Also announcer, wrestler, promoter. Here he is, Shane Knowles. How's it going, guys? Just got off the phone with Collie Edison, the CEO of the Professional Bowlers Association. Thanks to Steve's full disclosure, they have been in touch. As and yes, should. that is the actual CEO of the PBA. You can Google it, just like I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Attention That's great. to detail freaking matters. Oh. So, Shane, we're, we're no doubt going to talk about all kinds of stuff, but I wanted to get this out of the way from the jump. And that sure. is Peach State, as much as I would love to take credit for this, I can't. Peach State really was the group that operated outside of the dynamic of the monolith that was Wild Side and then Anarchy Wrestling, which was seen as the premier league the one where guys went that, you know, got syndicated, were on syndicated television and it was a big deal and went on to the big leagues and all that kind of stuff. But Peach State, one, how did you start that? And two, how did you make that thing work for so many years? Uh, well, let's go back to um, as a fan. And I think I'm much like a lot of people in the business, been a fan at four, since four years old. Um, and, and I'll just get right to it. What motivated me to start a promotion was my father and I, uh, we would travel for indie promotions. Uh, you know, we're talking, since, I don't know, 98, 99. And Larry may have attended some of these. When Jerry Oates brought back Georgia Championship Wrestling down in Columbus in that 03 Hell yes. to 06 era. Hell yes. Yeah, for, Tremendous shows with a lot of veteran name talent on top, but a lot of guys who were working TNA, like your Sonny Siakis and David Youngs, you know, on the undercard, really flourishing. So, I mean, we, would, we were those fans, man. We'd make those hour-and-a-half, two-hour drives for shows that I found online, uh, you know, that I thought would be worth our time. But this is actually, guys, uh, what sparked me to start a promotion. July 4th, 2007, uh, while attending uh, an event, on America's birthday, uh, Abdullah the Butcher and pretty boy Doug Summers were going to be in attendance signing autographs, um, Holy meet and greets, whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I told Pops, I said, hey, we're not, you know, we're going to grill out during the day. I said, let's go check out some wrestling. And, you know, I just got to stop right here because I'm sure I'll say it a thousand times. I've learned a ton since I got in the business. I sure didn't know then at age uh, 27 what I know now, and I probably won't know now what I know hopefully at age uh, 50 coming up in eight years about pro wrestling. But what I knew this insulted me to no end. The promoter of that show was the ring announcer, which, hey, I mean, that's how I started too, promoter, and I was our ring announcer at Peach State for uh, about the first year. 
Um, but he was, you know, the ring announcer and baby face, you know, welcoming everybody in, having a good time, plugging the concession stands and the merch and whatnot. During the main event, he slides up, hands a gimmick to the heel who uses it to bash the baby face. One, two, three, he's getting heat from the crowd. Once he goes back over to the microphone, he slips that switch back into babyface promoter mode, wanting to tell you, I hope you had a good time tonight. Y'all please support me. I was blood pressure through the roof, and my dad was just all the way home. I'm complaining, and I'm like, I feel so insulted as a wrestling fan. I was like, I just got slapped in the face, and everybody there was just cool with it, and I'm like, I'm not, you know? And I was like, uh, and this was in the West Georgia area, by the way. And so I said, you know what? I said, I'll be damned. I said, you know, I, I don't know how to break into this business because, I mean, you know, podcasts weren't a big thing at the time. But, you know, Vance had certainly pulled back the curtain. And uh, I heard you guys talking about the newsletter. I, I've been a subscriber since about the year 2000. So, I mean, you know, as far as some inner workings and what's really going on and whatnot. But, um, here's how it happened. I attended a show at the Zamora Shrine Temple, and I think I saw Larry over there at a couple of these when Linda Martin <laughs> yep. was running yep, in Birmingham. I was there, yep, true. And uh, the man that uh, was the first booker at Peach State, Mike Jackson, happened to be on that show. And not knowing him from Adam's house, Cat, you know, having watched him uh, on NWA as a kid, and certainly he was on a lot of the independent shows that I attended, walked right up to him, introduced myself, gave my number, and I said, I'd like to start a promotion. Can you help me? Little did I know that Captain Carney over here <laughs> had a guy with a wrestling ring, a plethora of phone numbers of talent to bring in, and was all too happy to take my money, I'll guarantee you, to get this thing going off the ground. And I'm not speaking yeah. bad of Mike. That's just how he is. He's not the only Carney in pro wrestling, good Lord, but when you're still around on the loop after 45, 50 years, people get wise sometimes. <laughs> but he – um. I talked to him on the phone that weekend, that next weekend, for probably about an hour and a half. And something stuck with me. He was like, you know, people that normally ask me to run a show at a high school or a community center or a church, you know, he said, you know, he said, I think they're dumb. Or they're just like, you know, total money marks. He's like, you seem to have a vision. You seem to have structure for what you're wanting to do here. And I said, yeah, man, it may just all be a pipe dream. I said, but, you know, I need somebody to help, you know, bring this together. And so – we, we did that talk probably in April of 2009, first Peach State show uh, in Bremen, Georgia, June 27th, 2009. Uh, and I can still recall the card, I guess because you never forget your first. <laughs> um, opening match, Damon Taz uh, versus the Ultimate Dragon. Mike Jackson versus, uh, boy, you got to love this name, El Mexicano. Thankfully, he's been working as Antonio Garza for the last eight years. <laughs> Um, third match, uh, Ace Rockwell, Sal Renaro. So, and I'll talk more about Sal. That's why he's one of those guys near and dear to my heart because he's been there from day one, the very first show. Um, mm-hmm. Ace Rockwell, Sal Renaro, and then uh, the minis match with uh, Little Mr. Kennedy and Little Papa Pump. Uh, we come out of intermission with the <laughs> Disco Inferno versus Johnny Rage. And in the main event, uh, TC Carnage working Buff Bagwell. So, I mean, you know, looking back on it, we drew 137 people on that first show, and I lost money. But, you know, I didn't know then what I knew now. And I, I really think 137 uh, on the first show, I was like, man, I'll tip my cast to that, you know, even though it wasn't a money move. 
Mm. Did I lose you guys? Yeah, no, just no. momentarily there. Okay. okay. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you a funny story because I'm all about self-deprecating, uh, you know, not knowing then. Uh, Bill Barron's, when I was looking for talent for the show, had never met Bill. Uh, Bill certainly would not, you know, know him as well as I would become to know him 2015 through 18 working at Peach State. Uh, at the time, Bill was working with the lovable Georgia Wrestling Commission that was headquartered on Martin Luther King Drive in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> uh, had Bill's number, and I called him up, and I'm sure I sounded like a total rube. I said, I'm starting a promotion. I want to make sure everything's on the up and up. And, you know, he told me about the $100 for promoters, license, et cetera. And then I asked him, I said, do you have any uh, – now, see, I didn't know Bill even ran showbiz. Inc. Totally clueless here, guys, you know, from the beginning. And I said, do you have any numbers? or some contacts on guys. And he didn't have to do this because he didn't get an agent fee or anything off it. But he gave me numbers for David Young and for Johnny Swinger uh, and Disco Inferno. And all three of those guys appeared on the first three shows we ever had, not all at the same time. uh, Talking about how I got worked, I call up Mr. Glenn Gilberti, who was probably just about to do a hand of blackjack in some casino in Roswell underground. But he, uh, because that's what it sounded like in the background with the jackpot slot machines, called him up and told him, you know, I gave him a date, and he just told me, I'll do it for four. There was no negotiating $400, (laughs) exactly what I paid him. The next time I paid Disco, which was the second and final time, so, hey, woe is me in the beginning, but it happens to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Peach State had the high watermark, certainly, the Jeff Hardy show. Um, can you talk us a little bit about that high watermark and the fact that I just realized, like, you worked with the two carniest motherfuckers in the state, Shay. Like, mm. you worked with mm-hmm. Mike Jackson and Rick Michaels, who are not, who are both carny as hell, but not the same guy in the least. How? No, not at all. What are you, do you have a psychology degree? How are you able to work with those guys and have a very fruitful relationship in completely different ways with both of those guys? That's, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing, honestly. Um, you're exactly right as far as being carny, and then I think maybe the similarities stop there between the two of them. I mean, both of them have the appreciation of the old-school wrestling, I would say that, but as far as how they conduct themselves – uh, how they talk to talent, um, you know, the ideas. It, it really was because I worked with Mike from 2008 through 2013, then Rick Michaels 2013 through 2018. So I have a five-year stretch with each individual. And, uh, yeah, polar opposites of that. And you said, do I have a psychology degree? I did minor in uh, abnormal psych in college. But if I didn't get a degree in that, I certainly have one now after yeah, dealing with a decade of of those two, <laughs> but uh, um, it's uh, and I think your question was getting to the high water mark with Jeff Hardy. Um, March twenty second, twenty fourteen, the date of that show. Um, that is that was probably less than six months into Rick Singer as Booker because Mike left in November of twenty thirteen. So we're looking at probably what three months, three four months of that deal. Um, of course, Rick, as we know, I mean, was making gear, and uh, Hardy at the time was in TNA, 
and Rick messaged me. I think he called me. He did call me. And he, No, this time he messaged me because he called later. Anyway, he messaged and said, would you be interested in Jeff Hardy doing a meet and greet? And I said, well, sure. I said, you know, I think that's a fabulous idea. And then it was a week later he called me because I remember Rick doesn't call anybody unless it's really important. And he was like, Correct. Jeff said he can work. And I said, well, now we're talking a different ballgame. I said, this isn't just signing autographs you know, taking pictures. He wants to work. So we had to quickly throw the storyline together uh, with the heels of Adam Jacobs and Ace Haven at the time with Fred Yehi, the babyface, and, um, you know, make it for a need for there to be a, a special tag team challenge after a beat down and a very special partner. And uh, I'll never forget the, the pop. You know, it was uh, the partner is the charismatic enigma Jeff Hardy, and they didn't stop screaming for about 15 seconds straight and that changed the whole dynamic um 668 that number um is still embedded in my brain on that and you know both of you have been to the fairgrounds in Carrollton. i know larry far more times the line that night stretched all the way down that highway down to bankhead highway took a right going towards the two service stations raceway and quick trip that are a quarter mile (laughs) up the road Oh man! And I was just amazed, you know. And I, because I, I mean, I love music, and I think back to one of Johnny Cash's songs called "The Night Hank Williams Came to Town," with the lyric in that song, uh, "Nobody stayed at home for miles around on the night Hank Williams came to town." I felt that way about Jeff Hardy, just about anyone in that West Georgia area that gave a rat's ass about pro wrestling seemed to be in the venue that night. And um, you know, I told Steve this when we spoke last week. In hindsight, it felt like we gave it away, so to speak. In promoter terms, it was $10 for a ticket, $3 to enter the meet and greet. Now, here's the Holy moly. Autographs with Jeff Hardy, 5 bucks. A picture with oh. Jeff Hardy, 5 bucks. And when we talked about it, I told Rick, I said, look, I'm not being insulting. And I know we're going to get a lot of people coming from the Atlanta metro area, hopefully, or you know, towards uh, East Alabama, the Birmingham Way. I said, but for our core audience, a lot of these people are not exactly wealthy, not really the lowest common denominator. But what I'd like to do, I, I don't want to punish them been so loyal for years by jacking up the price and saying just because it's here and you want to come, now you've got to pay top dollar. And it really works because, you know, let's look at it now. If you're going to pay $15, $20 for an autograph, that's the one autograph you're going to get. We had multiple people getting two, three, maybe upwards of four or five autographs because they could afford it. Figures, backpacks, posters, hats, you name it. And being the fan that I am, that made me feel good that not only because everyone has a favorite, take your pick, but for a lot of people, Jeff Hardy is their favorite wrestler ever and certainly yes. was in 2014. And so, like, they were able to get more than one picture. Like, I can get a picture solo, and then my wife or my girlfriend, my mom, my dad, my kids, and it's 10 bucks for two of them, and that made me feel good because it was still a smashing financial success. Could we have made more? Sure. But I don't think anybody left out of there not happy because they were able to buy more at a cheaper rate and feel really good about it. And, you know, and Jeff worked his tail off, man. That match was close to 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, it kind of felt like to me we had our WrestleMania one here because you had uh, Jacobs and Ace Haven with Amy Haven, and over there we had uh, – uh, Fred Yehi and Jeff Hardy with Aja Pereira, you know, so we had the uh, Orton Snuka dynamic. Oh, my goodness. 
you know, that that may have been the high watermark attendance wise, but artistically, uh, you know, 2015, 2016 into 2017. That's the era that I remember that, that I think of most fondly of, of Peach State. I mean, those were fan, those mm-hmm. were just fantastic shows. Yeah, and um, it was an embarrassment of riches. You know, when you look at that talent roster, and I think I spoke about this the last time I was on this very program, but the minds we had in that locker, huh. not only for storylines, but for match finishes, for program ideas, for stuff to look at three, six, six months down the road, Jimmy Ray, Sal Renaro, Rick Michaels, Simon Sermon, I mean, I'll throw myself in here, Bill Barons, um, there was just uh, Jeff G. Bailey. And, you know, there were a couple of times I look around these venues and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, you know, this is almost like a summit, you know, uh, an old NWA convention meeting here with ideas. And uh, it, it really, and once everything was on the up and up, fans got into it because, um, as we all know, the Mike Jackson era was defined by storytelling, but the in-ring was, did not hold up its end of the deal. And when Rick Michaels came on board and asked what I wanted to do, and this is why he was picture perfect for that, I said, I want to continue telling stories. I don't want to be the promotion that has 50,000 high spots and cool moves and you go home with nothing invested. Can we still tell our stories but upgrade the talent roster? And, man, we did in a big way. Um, Mike Posey, the early beginnings of uh, Ace Haven breaking out, Iceberg, Dusty McWilliams, Bull Buchanan, on top of everyone I just named, Kyle Matthews, uh, Tyson Dean, um, that was really a magical time. And I think about it now, I really thought about it some this week when I knew we'd be doing this program. Most of those guys, that 2015 to 2018, look where they're at in the business. Yeah. Well, you know, Shane, I was just going to say, I just was looking through some results, and I just just read one through one. This is uh, October 21, 2017. Mm-hmm. Adam Priest, David Ali, Alan Angels, Jimmy Rave, Ashton Starr, AC Mack, Slim J, Austin Theory. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's here's a little behind the scenes part about that era that might catch Shane Knowles a little by surprise. When you okay. look at the promotions that had their year, right, or their two years, let's say. Like Rampage was very prominent at one point, right? But the boys, and I can't speak for all of them, but I heard of more than one instance when the boys involved in the Rampage show didn't want to fucking be there. Like, you know, they were like, they pay more than everybody and all of that stuff. But there was a point where, like, different guys did not want to go do that show. I never ever heard any of the boys talking about not wanting to do peach state. So not only were they doing great things and you know, when you're winning, nothing's wrong, right? That's part of wrestling. It's part of sport. You know, when you're, when you're doing well, people want to be there, but even when peach state wasn't doing as well, as far as attendance or they're having problems with venues, the boys never didn't want to be there. And I think that's the ultimate testament to not only Peach State, but to Shane specifically. Like, people believed in Shane and liked Shane in the same way that, like, 
I mean, people wrestled for Inoki, but people loved Baba. You know what I mean? Like, there was the difference. And I think Shane was definitely in the latter camp where the guys respected him and trusted him and just had a good time being there, independent of the the quality of the show itself. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important thing to note. Because Rampage Rampage went away, and I got to just – I'll just be brutally honest. Nobody gave a fuck. You know, and and the feeling was they didn't give a fuck. They didn't do a last show, even though they easily could have. Like, that's when you really saw what that leak was when they just ended it. Because there wasn't this, like, the show is so beloved, we have to go out. Whereas Peach State, I'm glad one of the last shows that they ran was when Ace won that title. Or when you had that great, I mean, knowing Buff Bagwell was on the first show that you ran, and then you guys Mm -hmm. were able to bring him back and have this kind of wonderful moment where he's physically barely able to do anything, but everybody just had this sort of tacit agreement of, we're going to make this work. Fans, and by the way, and you guys had the fucking craziest fans. Like, that cannot be understated and must be said. You guys had the fucking maniac fans that people pretend that they have now, but it was not like Peach State was. Uh, well, off of that, and I appreciate it, uh, I told Steve this, but Larry, the first time I ever heard you mention Peach State was back in the days when you were doing Peach State Pandemonium on this very platform. Uh, uh-huh. It was our third show in August of 2008. You were doing recaps, you know, and. Uh, as you often do, talk about where you're going to be for the weekend. And you talked about, and I'll never forget, like, the confusion in your voice. You said, um, hey, guys, I guess it's a new group, Peach State Wrestling Alliance in Bremen, Georgia at the rec center. And then you started reading off the card of Truett Fields, Sean Tempers, Ace Rockwell, Sal Renaro, Bullet Bob Armstrong, Scotty Riggs, Mike Jackson, and, um, oh, I'm leaving, uh, Elix Skipper. And you just said, I, I, I don't know who's running that, but, that's a hell of a talent lineup right there. And I remember giving the fist pump. I was like, Larry Goodman just mentioned it. Hopefully somebody's <laughs> listening. Somebody hopefully realizes what's going on here. And uh, that was kind of cool. But uh, I do have a story about Manic Fan, uh, if I can go through Please. it for you. Yes. I think this deserves to be told to some people. <clears throat> the High Water Mart 668 with Jeff Hardy, March 22nd, 2014 eclipsed what took place February 21st, 2011. And uh, I hope I can tell this story justice because I've recanted it, you know, to friends, coworkers, when they're like, man, some of those times. This was when I was just the, uh, the ring announcer slash commissioner, right? I mean, no one had seen me do anything. Uh, I was the guy that just, you know, uh, reserved your tickets, made sure you had enough hot popcorn and ice for your cola in the concessions, you know? And, Mike Jackson, which he has been proud to do, uh, was going to retire with our belt at the time, the Heritage title. And, um, you know, he built it up because everyone knew we sold tickets together and sat out at these Kmarts and Dollar Generals all day long and uh, sold the tickets. And anyway, the show prior, uh, February 4th, yeah, I believe it would have been that date, he came out and did the spiel about, you know, only Shane knows this, but we talked taught me out of it but it's time to retire. And you could hear the gasp from the crowd. And he was like, but, you know, it's just time for me to go home. 
And I came in the ring, shook his hand, gave him a big hug, and I said, Mike, yes, I did try to talk you out of it, but this is your decision, and I just want you to know that February 21st, we're going to make sure we give you a send-off you never forget. And as we embraced that crowd with a standing ovation, and he leaned in my ear and he said, there's no turning back, boy. And I said, oh, I know, two weeks. <laughs> so um, what had happened, the dragon, the top heel at the time, had been suspended by me for putting his hands on me. He was the first guy to put his hands on me because he didn't like the decision, stripping him of that very belt. So we get to February, tw- uh, yeah, February 21st, and these fans, man, they've made retirement cakes. And I'm not talking about they went to Publix or Ingalls and got something put on there. I'm talking about the salt of the earth ladies got up at 4 and 5 a.m. and made these cakes from scratch with hand, by hand. Um, one of our crazy fans, who I will not give him the uh, justice or you know, the notoriety of saying his name, he had pulled me aside at Kmart that day. He had went and got um, and made a plaque. The guy spent like $50. And it said to Mike Jackson, not only a great wrestler, but a great friend. And so to make this a big deal, because it's all about the presentation, right? Um, Mike's retirement ceremony was going to take place at intermission. Wrestling on the card that night, the dog-faced gremlin Rick Steiner. And we made sure to book Chick Donovan. And so Mike comes out in a suit and tie, and I'm in a suit and tie. And, you know, I do some hokey stuff, like some retirement gifts. I give him an umbrella and say, you know, much like me, you're follically challenged, so you'll need this so you don't get that head sunburnt when you're sitting out in the rocking chair. If it rains, you can also cover your head. It, it, it serves a dual purpose. And we gave him a rocking chair, and he's sitting there having a good time. Rick Steiner comes in and gives him a watch. Uh, Chick Donovan gives him, I forget what it was, a book. I'm sure it was Chick being articulate, as he is. Um, and then the fan wanted to bring the plaque in the ring and started uh, breaking down, and the fans are loading the ring apron with these cakes. Well, and when Mike's giving the speech about thank y'all and his years in the business, Dragon's music hit, wouldn't you know it? And you could just feel the tension in that building. By the way, I say the Jeff Hardy show surpassed that attendance number. There was 469 in the building that night at the fairgrounds. And yeah. – you could feel the tension, and, of course, I mean, Steiner had left, Chicks left. It's only me and Mike in the ring. Dragon comes in, and to set that last little bit here, I mean, because I don't think anybody saw this coming, but I made sure I met him at the ring steps, and I said, you know, the last time I saw you was four months ago when you put your hands on me and you were suspended, so you better have a damn good reason for being here. And he sidestepped me, and everyone's chanting, you know, hit him, Chick. Dragon gets in and starts telling Mike, you know, you should have quit 10 years ago. It's people like you that hold the next generation down. Mike says he doesn't want any trouble. I just want to leave. I want to go home, spend time with my wife. Dragon provokes him. Finally, Mike rears back with a punch, lays him out. A couple of moves, Dragon bails. In the corner, selling that I'm scared because I had done no physical confrontation, I'm gripping the umbrella. And this was per Mike. Hit me as hard as you can. So when he turned around, I whacked him with that umbrella, and it left a Tom and Jerry cartoonish side goose egg on that forehead. As soon as I whacked him, I started waving my hands. It's time. It's time. Let's go. Let's go. Here comes Rick Michaels. Here comes Simon Sermon. Here comes two masked men in suits and ties that I had as my insurance policy, the best protection money can buy. Dragon gets up. We rip Mike's jacket off. We duct tape him to the turnbuckles. I take his own belt and give him some lashes that 
boy, if you thought The Passion of the Christ was a tough movie to watch, he said, you better lay those things in there like you hate them. And we drilled him. Here comes retirement cakes are being flung into the ring, and this is what's great. The side fight of the ladies, you could hear them, I made that cake. They start fighting with each other over the fact that someone threw the cake. Simon Sermon gets hit in the crotch with a full Sprite can. God bless him. He no-sold it. My one good black jacket at the time had nachos and retirement cake all over it. We beat him down, stripped him down, and as we go to leave, uh, security's having more than a tough time. And I feel a hand cup hit me right in the ear and called me an asshole. My ear rang for two days. We get to the back. Once the carnage has you know, went away, I hear the entire chanting of Shane sucks, Shane sucks in the entire, because that was intermission. And Mike was, you know, true to his point, he said, really duct tape me, because he said, there'll be a fan in the crowd that's got a knife. And when that fan with the knife has to come cut me down, they're going to tell everybody else. They really duct tape. Sure enough, work to fruition. Uh, at the end of the night, there was a battle royal to crown, you know, uh, the vacant title. Mike came in, in those street clothes, welts all over him dumped the hill out, cut the promo on me, and said, I'm not leaving. I want a PCU, et cetera, et cetera. So that 2011, when I turned and formed that faction with the exotic ones and with the dragons, that is what really got peached. And I'm not – because I was just a, a part of this story. But what I'm saying, we drew 469 that night. We didn't draw under 320 the rest of that year. And mm-hmm. it was freaking right. me and Mike Jackson and the dragon in the mix here. And the storytelling, I just thought those guys really did a number. Did, and, and, and what it culminated in at the end of the year was uh, after Mike had beaten me and the dragon beat me down, I turned babyface. Um, I didn't even have gear at this point. I had a peach state tank top, or that I had cut the sleeves out, with blue jeans and boots. And he attacked my father, which you think if people like me, you don't mess with Pete Knowles to those people in the West Georgia area. But... Um, <laughs> To close out the show for Thanksgiving turmoil, with I mean, the dragon and I on top, and I don't even have gear, and we drew 417 people. And it just blew my mind. That It blew my mind then. It blew my mind looking at it now. And I was like, the storytelling had to be that good with all parties involved because, Jesus Christ, it wasn't a, a six-star classic in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, Shane, you know, when you think about Peach State, and, I mean, I I hate that every question I ask sounds like, oh, for sure you guys are done. But when you think about Peach State and you think about the origins, um, which is a wonderful story, by the way, um, did it – do you have regrets? Do you is your feeling more like I can't believe that it got as big as it did? Like, what is your overall honest take looking at Peach State and the legacy that you helped make? Well, as you heard the story of why I actually started a promotion, and when I started, I didn't have, you know, a time frame of we're going to run a show, we're going to run two shows, we're going to be around a year. It just grew organically. Um, you know, and then I look back on it like we did 13 years. I will steal a line from one Stephen Platinum. Is there a need for Peach State? I don't know. 
you know, the dynamic of the landscape has changed with Southern Honor. Uh, I mean, take Southern Honor, take out Rampage. Uh, you know, bring in um, uh, back Anarchy, take out uh, NWA Atlanta. You know, uh, there's been a rise of a lot of promotions in the state of Georgia during our final year and a half, two years, and certainly in the nine months that we've been gone. But I'll tell you why um, that I think Peach State will come back eventually one day because we just had the big problem finding venues. And as I told Steve when we set up this interview, after 13 years of just being lied to and double booked and we had the date and we're set and somebody says you got to go, I just said I'm going to take a break. I'm going to stop chasing venues for my mental health, and I'm going to enjoy other interests in life that I've put on the back for a good portion since 2008. Um, And it has been rewarding. And I work pro-South in that role every week, and that's good for the fix, man, because that is such a good developmental ground, and there's guys that are hungry and want to learn, and that's what I want to be around, you know, guys that are looking – They'll bring up stuff that they read on Georgia Wrestling History, or I talked to Huck, or I talked to Logan about something. I didn't realize you guys did this, and I'll never big league anybody because I'm not in that position to ever big league. But I'm just like, yeah, you know, Peach State did do some of that stuff, and they start asking questions about this and that, and you know, because some of this was before their time. And yeah. they're interested, but I, I will say the reason, and uh, I will get sentimental on this one, after we did the thing with the Dragon back November of 2011, I was still renting the ring. My grandmother passed away, my father's mother, at the age of 91. Her last thing to me was to give me the money to get my own wrestling. My grandmother didn't understand oh pro wrestling, didn't really you know, care for it, but she knew it was something I was passionate about. And she knew if I was paying 350 to $400 twice a month, then maybe I could get a little leeway going in this business if I had my own ring. And that mm-hmm. is the ring that has been at Peach State since January of 2012, and it's all oh, thanks yeah. to uh, my late grandmother, Hazel Knowles. And I can't thank her enough for that donation because she gave me the check for that, and she died a week later. And that's why it is personal. And that's why, you know, when you, when you get mad and frustrated at fans sometimes and you get frustrated with the boys or maybe things just aren't clicking on a certain show, microphones aren't working, the music's not playing, the, the Wi-Fi service in this venue worked when we set up, now it's not working now, and they're out of cheese for the nachos. That's why I try to keep my composure because I'm like, you know, this was something that was gifted to me and I have to do everything I can with it. And I don't think we're done yet. Mm, that's awesome. I, uh, Larry, I have a question for you. As somebody who attended Peach State at different events, what, you know, Larry, you and I always talk about, like, sort of big picture stuff away from public ears, right? Like, yeah, what is yeah, this league yeah. doing? What is that league doing? When you think about Peach State, what are the immediate things that come to your mind um, when you think the, about uh, your experience there? The uh, the vibe in that at the west at the west at the VFW fairgrounds when that built when that building got hot, it was incredible. 
the the way that building would buzz. That's that's what I remember. That's what the first thing that comes to mind is the atmosphere of those shows. It was just really something. And um, seeing, you know, so many great performers and great stories be, that were told there, you know, it was, it was going to, it was magic. Um, I loved it. And uh, if I could, I, you spoke on the fans, their dedication. And some of these fans, they would have deaths in the family. They would still attend. They'd be sick. They would have been in an auto accident. They'd still attend. Those true blue 75 to 100 core Peach State fans, I've never seen anything like them in the other states I've worked, in the other promotions I've worked, um, because it was the brand to them. It was what we had presented. It didn't matter if it was a completely different card two weeks later from what they'd seen the previous two weeks. It was Peach State. It was PWA in their minds. And the fact that we ever ordered 100 T-shirts and wound up selling right at 88 of them with the company's name on them, that's something I never thought would ever happen. Like, Who would want to buy uh, a T-shirt with the name of a company that I created? Uh, but, you know, I still see those shirts from time to time. In the West Georgia oh, area. My first and, thought was, uh, I would love to have one of those fucking shirts. You know, like it's, <laughs> and think about this. I mean, we haven't brought this up, but the first show I attended in that area was Turnbuckle, right? Yeah. Like, you're operating in the shadow of an undeniable all-timer wrestling legend in Dusty Rhodes, right? And My father and I attended many of those shows there, yeah. And, I mean, those shows were wacky in their own right. I mean, I remember going to a show where, you know, the ring broke because they had a wooden ring at one point. It physically broke, and they had to, like, and there's Barry Windham and whoever, like, busting out tools to physically fix. Like, but well, instead, it, of, instead of that town being burned out... You created the scene, not Turnbuckle and Dusty Rhodes. You're the one who drew crowds. You're the one who learned from the ground up and managed to do it while holding on to integrity. I cannot emphasize how amazing that is. You know, like that you didn't, you weren't a, a fucking five finger asshole like somebody else we might be talking right now. Like, <laughs> you know, we. Everybody had their own style. When you look at that era between you and, you know, Barons and Palmer and that guy, you know, like just the personalities of the guys running this thing, we were completely different than one another. Um, and you managed to learn on the job all the jobs related to wrestling and do them all incredibly well. And it's, it's very stunning. I mean, it's just, it's a unique story. It's just amazing to me. Um, I have one funny story I must share with you guys, because there was a lot I wanted to get here. So um, Bob Holly, who we're all familiar with, right? right? Um, yeah. Hardcore Bob Holly, not very, uh, not much of a jovial, joking person, wouldn't you say? No. Um, no. This this was in 2009 after his release from the WWE, and, of course, Mike Jackson knew him because Bob lived in Mobile, Alabama, and he said Bob's looking for work. 
do you think we could get him a date? And I said, sure. And, you know, got a good price. Well, we put him in with this guy named Anthony Sanders from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, you know, Bob gets there, and, of course, he's cordial, you know, shakes hands, how you doing? And, then he, you know, he wants to be to himself. Well, this Sanders guy, who's about, you know, 5'9", 320 pounds, comes up to him and starts telling him, and I quote, these great ideas that we're going to do. And I want to do this, and I want to do that. And Bob looked at him like Johnny Depp when Amber Heard got done with the bed, if you've kept up with that. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, he said, I- I've got to go sign some autographs and take pictures. We'll put the match together, because they were main. And then he comes back at intermission. The guy hadn't learned to keep his mouth shut and starts telling Bob, yeah, I thought we'd do this, we'd do that. And he had, I mean, you could see Bob just raging. The face is purple. He's ready to kill this guy. And so when they get out in the ring, the match that was supposed to be about 8 to 10, you know, a good 8 to 10 with the star, slip Bob over, uh, became about two and a half minutes of stiff forearms, chops, and I swear to God, when he got him in that Alabama slam, he had him by the ankles, he threw him down on his neck, and Anthony Sanders became the first guy to ever leave Peach State not getting paid because he was in tears. Um, and what's funny, that guy is the same one, if you've heard the story with Bull Buchanan, that wound up doing the gimmick as one-man crew and made the bad decision to shoot on Bull Buchanan. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. No! Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay, uh, well, this thing, that was 2009. This would have been about 2012, and I'm working as a ring announcer over for one of those Alabama shows in the Birmingham area uh, where Bull is working the one-man crew who now does this rap gimmick, and he's got these CDs with the nice little convenience store gas station cover art, you know, that he's trying to sell at a table. And I, I, to no one's surprise, he didn't move a single one. But uh, he gets ready. He's got his uh, tap-out tank top on. He's got his cut-off UFC gloves. He's ready. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, if I'm going to shoot on somebody, I might go for Sean Waltman. Because I always thought I could beat his ass. You know, he probably still kicked mine, but I think you got a better chance than a 2012 Bull Buchanan who's still doing tours of Japan, you know, at the time. He gets him over in the corner, and this guy starts shooting with elbows and punches. He hits like three or four on about oh the fifth Bull put the block up, gave him a right hand that looked like Tyson Fury on De- Deontay Wilder, sent him halfway <laughs> across the canvas. Gives him three or four forearms with that sickening thud and then puts him, I don't know if you want to call it a rear naked choke, some kind of submission. And kids, this is just the way it was, screamed at the top of his lungs, you better tap, motherfucker, I'll break your neck. Referee calls for the bail immediately. And all I could think was Mike Jackson looked at me and he said, ain't that the same guy that pissed Bob Holly off? I said, yeah. And you know what? No one's heard from his fence in the business. I mean, oh my God. that's just how it happened. Um, yeah, that's, that's some poor judgment. <laughs> and I've, I got I got to share one more story. Uh, though yeah, it's kind of comical. This one is about the late great Bullet Bob Armstrong, um, mm-hmm. who I hold in high regard. I know most people in the Southeast do. We're flat, I mean, I'm doing a lot of jump time here, um, but going back to when I, you know, had first talked to Mike Jackson about getting in, and he invited me over over to a show in Sylacauga, Alabama. Uh, you know, to come in the locker room and meet the boys and and whatnot, Bob was on the show. Now, in Bob's own lovely demeanor way, when I shook his hand and introduced myself, 
Bob asked me where I'm from, and then he starts talking about Carrollton, Georgia, and Marietta, Georgia. Now, mind you, to give you the visual, he's got those white boots. He's got the green singlet with the straps pulled down below his butt cheeks, and he's got a Marlboro in his hand, and the mask is tipped up over the forehead. And he's talking to me about Carrollton and Marietta like we're old friends. And about that time, the opening strings to George Sorgood's Bad to the Bone hits. He looks at me, he says, well, kid, go time. Pulls the straps up, pulls the mask down, flicks the cigarette out. Probably only Clint Eastwood could do it cooler. And went out and started doing the shuck and jive dance. And I just had my mouth uh, agaze, like, what just happened here? Um, But the other Bob Armstrong story I want to share, and this one's one that I really think needs to be out there, not because I'm telling it, but a testament to a lost art or just a lost way of professionalism in pro wrestling. This would have been three years ago at a show down in Moulton, Alabama, that was like a Continental reunion. And uh, you guys know how big Continental was in the state of Alabama. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy Golden's there. Robert Fuller's there. Wildcat Wendell Cooley's there. Advertise Scott and Steve Armstrong. Well, everyone else showed. By the way, I had the good fortune of working Nature Boy Paul Lee, but that's a story for another time on that show. <laughs> and um, Scott and Steve Armstrong, they weren't there when everyone else was supposed to be at 3 o'clock. So the promoter's getting nervous, and he's like, you know, I don't know. And he tried reaching Steve on his cell phone, and he tried reaching Scott on his cell phone. And, um, you know, mind you, this isn't Boutwell Auditorium. This, this is a high school gymnasium in Moulton, Alabama. And he couldn't get a hold of either one of them. And so what I did not know is I guess he would place the call to their dad. You know, and we're having the meeting for the show, 30 minutes in the locker room before the doors open, and I happen to be standing by the door. And everyone's in there that should be, personnel, referees, ring announcer, you name it. So when the door opened and bumped me in the back, my initial reaction was, what the hell? And I turn, red tank top, black windsuit pants, with a gear bag, Bob Armstrong. He walks in that locker room. Everyone is quiet. Mike Jackson says, Bob, what are you doing here? Johnny Swinger was there too. And Bob said, you know what? My sons are too sorry to give you a call back, but if there's going to be a continental reunion, by God, there's going to be an Armstrong on the show. (laughs) I had chill bumps. I had tears welling in my eyes that this man wasn't booked, took the time with his wife to drive from Gulf Breeze, Florida, which was a two-and-a-half-hour drive, when he wasn't booked just to make it good for the show, to make it right for the boys, to make it right for the fans. And I just had to walk off. I was like, Jesus Christ, that kind of stuff, that level of dedication just isn't there anymore. But it's there with Bullet Bob Armstrong. May he rest yeah. in peace. Yeah. Mm. Well, Shane, uh, I know this thing's it's going to kick us off here before long, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, I know you've got tons of stories. I hope we hit um, the things that you wanted, sort of talked about at least. Um, what are your kind of final thoughts? I mean, the floor is yours. You know. Say whatever you'd well, like to thank say. Thank you for that. 
I was already going to joke about there probably should be a part two just on stories. I probably shouldn't have done that many. But these are, you know, these are ones I haven't really told a lot of people, and I just wanted to get them yeah. out there. I thought people would appreciate them. But, uh, you know, one thing I want to put over is my father, Pete Knowles, 74 years old. The only person that has never missed a Peach State event is him because I missed one. Uh, I double booked myself. In May of 2015, I was a groomsman uh, at a friend's wedding down in St. Augustine, Florida. So that showed how my dad and Rick Michaels came together. And it wasn't just any show. This was the go-home show for the anniversary <laughs> that year, and I missed it. And, I mean, all the way down before walking down the aisle, I had a headpiece in, you know, with texting and talking. And we do the whatever the wedding takes, 15, 20 minutes. I'm the first person to bolt, and I heard someone say, boy, he must really want to hit the champagne and the cake. And I'm like, screw the cake. I got to know if we came out of intermission in time. You know, did we, did we hit our cues? But, uh, yeah, my dad's never missed a show. And Peach State's been special. But uh, it's really a lot more special when you get to do it with someone near and dear to your heart. My father, um, big-time wrestling fan. And when you talked about the fairgrounds, not just turnbuckle, but that was a regular stop for Georgia Championship Wrestling on Fridays before you hit either – the Omni or the City Auditorium, you know, uh, I'm sorry, that would be Saturdays. But regardless, that was where I first got my taste of live wrestling, uh, a Georgia Championship Wrestling show with Bruiser Brody and Abdullah the Butcher and Tommy Rich and Johnny Rich and the Fantastics and the Assassins. And, I mean, I was hooked. And um, I, I am very thankful for the good and the bad that I've learned in pro wrestling as mm. being a promoter, a booker, a worker, uh, manager, referee, ring announcer, commissioner, GM, authority figure, whatever you want to call it, to serving you a hot dog. Um, and that's not just in wrestling. It's really helped me in life more in how you talk to people, how you treat people, uh, expectations, never getting too high, never getting too low. Because I feel like I've seen the best of the best in pro wrestling, and Jesus, I've seen the worst of the worst. We're just... <laughs> Uh, anything that could go wrong will go wrong, you know. But a wise man named Matt Hankins told me, he said, you know, uh, if you've got batteries and you've got a hammer and you've got duct tape, you can finish in, uh, you can fix anything in pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Shane. Um, just it was it's such a special show. Um, and, you know, I'm glad to hear that at some point it's going to run again. And I would imagine that this new generation or people that weren't working when the first time, they should, I mean, it should be a destination spot. You know, if I'm a young dude, <laughs> it's like, I want to I wanna have a taste of that. I want to have a taste of what Peach State was. And, uh I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling more stories are yet to be made, and that's and that's wonderful. That's how it should be. Shane, and did I you? Uh, it. And I just, go ahead. Did you tell me at one point, Shane, that the, the the fairgrounds might become available again for booking? Uh, yes, August of 2022 should be the plan. They uh, when COVID hit, they did a two year lease with a company from Atlanta, Georgia, that's basically using it as a storage warehouse to fix uh, tablets cell phones, uh, headsets, video game consoles, whatnot, but that lease, to my knowledge, should run out August of this year. Um, 
And I just got to say this because I've held it in for too long. I've been humble. I've been appreciative. I just want to say this to anybody who's listening. If you ever talk shit about me, if you ever tried to book a venue that I had, if you tried to take talent away on the same, if you tried to keep fans from going by demoralizing, demeaning, slandering my character, kiss my rosy red ass. I'm still here, and we're not done yet. And if that, if that offends you, then you're one of those, you know damn well in your conscience that you were guilty of. Ah, yes. Oh, what a great way to end. Fuck them indeed. <laughs> so, um, real quick, so Shane, on uh, Friday, are you going to be at Pro South? I will be behind the mic with Noah Howell, and uh, it's been a lot of fun working with him because uh, I went through a variety of partners at Pro South when we started doing the weekly streaming, but Noah and I have settled in, I think, into a good flow, a good rhythm. Uh, together. I think I mean, you I guys are going to be up for commentators of the year. I think that's happening this year. That's my prediction. Um, and i got to give a cheap plug. I mean, it's not Peach State Wrestling Alliance, but I am promoting an event uh, next Saturday, May 14th, over in Gadsden, Alabama. Um, you can check it out on Peach State Wrestling Alliance because, hey, I'm not going to call it Peach State. We're over in the Alabama. So I'm not doing Yellowhammer Wrestling Alliance because right now it's a woman. <laughs> We're just going to test the waters. All right. Nice. Well, thanks again, Shane, for coming on. And Lovey, for hitting us with those stats. I mean, tipping point is something else, man. And uh, for Larry Goodman, I'm Stephen Platinum. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week uh, when we pay tribute with Bobby Simmons to uh, referee Charlie Smith here on the tipping point. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.